for July 30th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 213, an elite squadron of Poppinses. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Everyone in the world, except for the four people on this podcast, are in the United Kingdom this week for the... (laughs) (laughs) And that includes our normal host, uh, Matthew Rather, and I am your stand-in host, Peter Fenzel. I'm your subaltern host, if you will, who comes forward when there's a brief break in the hegemonic discourse drink. Uh, Yes, the world gathers on the Isle of Great Britain in the country of England in the town of London uh, for the 2012 Olympics. And we're psyched. Uh, We hope you're psyched, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. But first, a question about that great first of the Olympics, the ceremony of opening, the opening ceremony. Panel. Which historical or cultural figure from England, or Great Britain in general if you like, who was not represented in the Olympic Games opening ceremony, do you wish were represented in the Olympic Games opening ceremony? Because there were a lot of them. <laughs> and if you pick one that happens to have actually been represented, we will let you know. Starting at the top of the alphabet, at the tip top, way up high, is Matt Belenke. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing just peachy. I'm, I'm in the Olympic spirit, you waiting, just, uh, waiting patiently for the steeplechase. Oh, you like the steeplechase? I love the steeplechase because it's like, why would you just watch a normal running race but you could watch a running race where like they put stuff in your way? The only <laughs> thing I, I don't that could make the steeplechase better is I think that the obstacle should be a surprise until it starts. <laughs> you like, you know, they're gonna put like it's either like water or or wall or like it could be like an alligator that's just crawling around the course. Um, it should basically be a little more Ninja Warrior, but this is the closest <laughs> we have at the Olympics. Right. Um, what cultural figure wasn't in there? I'm going to go with what I consider to be the obvious one and say uh, Gandalf, or in fact any Lord of the Rings uh, characters. Uh, there was this whole uh, section which was basically glorified fan fiction in the middle, which was a, uh, a, um, a, a tribute to children's literature and sort of accumulated in a big, um, a big uh, Voldemort versus um, Mary Poppins squad showdown. A squadron. And- as if they were British Spitfires descended <laughs> upon the battlefield. And I, I did enemy. not – this is where I, I felt like it was one of Danny Boyle's most serious missteps because, as I recall, there's only one Mary Poppins. I don't remember Mary Poppins being part of, like, an elite uh, squadron of, of Poppins. <laughs> you, you, haven't, you haven't watched the Poppins Supremacy. It's the next one, which yes, lets you know. There was <laughs> never only one Poppins. Yeah. Um, no, and, and it's just – I feel like it was such an obvious chance to have the showdown that we've all been hoping for, which was Voldemort versus Ian McKellen as Gandalf. Because like you can't tell me that like Ian McKellen wouldn't have shown up if the queen personally calls him. He got knighted, right? So he basically owes her – like knighting someone is basically like in The Godfather where like you know he does you a favor and like you have to do him a favor back when like Fredo gets killed in the toll booth. And like you know it should be like someday the queen of England will call you and ask you to put on your fake beard and show up for the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and fight a giant puppet. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I felt was, was missing. I, I think I heard some people say that the Lord of the Rings seemed present because of some of the art design, like the design of the of the sets, sort of seemed Isengard like at times, or, yeah. or even Hobbiton like. That there was an influence, an aesthetic influence, even if the characters weren't visible on the stage. We should come back to that. Oh, yeah, okay. unpacking that. Just, here's what just 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 to, to put it in perspective: Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was very much represented, <laughs> in <laughs> and they somehow left out like the Hobbit slash Lord of the Rings completely. I don't know if it's like a rights issue <laughs> that, like, the, the prickly estate of Christopher Tolkien refused to give the country of England the rights to, to depict hobbitses in any fashion but anyway I, I, I was sort of waiting for that for not it, Christopher Tolkien was going to let them do it but the open, he had to write the opening ceremony it was going to have to be 700 pages long and <laughs> mostly about like the origins of how the medals were formed <laughs> is what it's going to be about you aren't awesome. what? That that actually uh, was was part of the opening ceremonies in a way. I have but, to confess, I'm the only one in this panel who has not watched the bulk of the opening ceremony. I've seen clips, I've seen pieces. Uh, I was I was um, 
at the at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, incidentally enough, uh, while that was going on. But uh, that plug aside, we must move forward to our next member of the panel, the illustrious, the spectacular, the very handsome Mark Lee. How are you doing, Mark? Why, why thank you. I understand <laughs> that, you know, to appeal to the younger demographic, Daniel Craig as James Bond had to be an opening ceremony, but I don't understand why you still can't have Sean Connery. In the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Well, there's there's one probable reason, or at the very least why Sean Connery was not the James Bond selected to escort the Queen uh, to the, the ceremonies and that, that touching little little vignette that we saw with the corgis. And that's because <laughs> and that's because Sean Connery has for years been a very active and very vocal proponent of Scottish independence. Mm. There you go. That's a great reason. I did not know that. Yeah, but like that I, aside, I, I, if you think of like famous British cultural, uh, sort of, you know, uh, cultural icons of the British Empire of the realm, Sean Connery's pretty high up on that list, and it's a shame that um, he has, that uh, he couldn't be a part of this. Mm. Even like on the outside, you know, perhaps you know, do a, a smash cut away from the opening ceremonies to a lone Sean Connery protesting outside. <laughs> Scottish independence. <laughs> Scotland is free. <laughs> yeah, be as I'm as I'm reminded by by doing a little bit of. Quick reference, uh, Sean, uh, excuse me, Sir Connery is actually living in tax exile in the Bahamas um, for, uh, for, you know, not paying for not paying a couple million pounds in, in United Kingdom taxes. Huh. And he has he has apparently sworn not to return to Scotland until it becomes an independent state. Wow. So. Okay. So my choice is terrible. So I'm going to wipe that clean. And I say they should have chosen a depiction of Henry VIII screwing a lot of women. <laughs> because I saw the I saw the first episode of the Tudors this weekend, and apparently that's what England's all about: is the king screwing chicks. That's the basis of the religion, anyway. Yeah. Uh, moving on. <laughs> that's as in depth as we're willing to go on on the theology of England. Ah, uh, Anglicanism. There ain't no Anglicanism like Anglicanism. All right, Sean, go ahead. What ho? What ho? What ho? <laughs> Marlin. All right, so I, I probably shouldn't have bumped Lee off of uh, Sean Connery because he jumped to royalty, and uh, that sort of takes the punch out of my suggestion, which was uh, which would be Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, uh, who you know lived from June 1330 to June 1376, and there there's several debates over why he was known as the Black Prince or Edward the Black, but the most popular theory is because during his during his campaigns against the French at uh, Crecy and Poitiers, he was notoriously brutal, uh, including things like massacring peasants, burning farmland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that'd be that'd be a good historical reference, but also a neat little neat little bit of psyching out the uh, the competition for the Olympics. Like, hey, England's got a lot of kings in its history who murdered a lot of people. Go UK. <laughs> charming. Absolutely charming. <laughs> All right. So as I said, I didn't see the Olympics, but I'm going to guess that there were some things that weren't in there that really should have. Like, uh, like did, did they let um, – like Mr. Bean should have uh, com- conducted an orchestra, right? Like that couldn't have possibly happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got it. I'm sorry. They should have, they should have had uh, David Beckham on a speedboat. I think that would have been totally awesome, right? Isn't that uh, something that they didn't have? All right. Fair enough. Okay. Here's what they really should have had is that what I want to see is I want to see – and if they did this, I, I, my mind is blown – I want to see it open with a giant uh, Beijing 2008 dragon, like sort of snaking through the the opening ceremony, like plaza area, uh, who is then met in combat by like a fully mounted equestrian St. George carrying the cross of St. George, uh, the national flag of England on his banner, who slays the dragon. uh, And and then the cross of St. George like unfurls and says like London 2012. uh, And everybody (laughs) and everybody gets really upset. But in all seriousness, though, Pete, there were, I don't think there were any depictions of knight, knighthood, medieval, fun stuff like that at all in the opening ceremonies. Mm. So they probably were, like, branding it towards sort of what's the – well, there was a lot about the cultural legacy of England, right? But not in a medieval sense, sort of in an industrial and post-industrial yeah. sense, it's right? Sort of like, the cultural history of England, but only for, like, the last, like, maybe 300 years. 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because St. George slaying the dragon is a pretty important story. I mean, otherwise yeah. the island wouldn't be there, right? I don't even know. I just know that it's part of why they have the flag and that it appears in a bunch of stained glass windows that I saw a couple times. So, yeah, but that's interesting. Sort of, It is an opportunity to sort of brand your country, right? And then, I guess that's sort of our first topic that we can talk about is like what is, the, what is this brand? Like what is – why did they show what they showed? What story are they trying to tell? What are they trying to tell all of us about this country, sort of creating the idea of this country? Uh, what are they trying to inspire emotionally, intellectually? Uh, well, I mean you guys saw it, so you tell me because it sounds like it was pretty fascinating. It's more of a question of like, what weren't they trying to depict rather than what were they trying to. It was jam-packed. It was messy. A lot of parts were pretty cool and work. But the, uh, the the massive like youth social media pop culture musical montage in the middle did not do it for me. And I I, I watched the recorded version of it. And I fast-forwarded through most, if not all of it. Um, but that's my, sort of my quick two cents on it. We can sort of from there talk about the parts that were maybe more uh, culturally salient uh, so wait, yeah. the, the social media montage? There was a montage. Of I don't social- even. I don't well, even want to. St- let's not start there. Let's talk okay, about the other more start- interesting parts. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Well, let's see. It starts with this sort of agrarian, uh, this pastoral. Uh, paradise, right? And uh, you know, it's 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 this green meadow. It's got this sort of uh, this knoll. Uh, there are children playing. There are gentlemen in uh, old timey hats and mutton chops. It's the shire, and, right? It is. It is basically the sh- right. It it is uh, no hobbits present, but it 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 was a hobbitesque. And then <laughs> and then uh, and then Sir Kenneth Branagh uh, gets up there and recites a, a passage from Shakespeare, which is actually I was surprised. Uh, I googled this afterwards. It turns out it's from The Tempest, and it is about uh, it is about an island, but not about uh, England, about the the, the Tempest Island. Um, and I'm trying to I'm trying to, to to call it up, but it's it's sort of interesting because I sort of expected. If they were going to do a, a Shakespeare passage about England, there's like a very famous one from Richard II, where, um, which I, I don't know from memory, but I have it in front of me here, where you know he's talking about this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, the seat of Mars. Well, Blinky, uh, why, why, Blinky, why you look that one up? I'll read. Uh, I'll read Branagh's selection. Oh, good, good, good. So here we go. Uh, Branagh appears on a hill in the English countryside with a top hat and, and recites. Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again. And then in dreaming, the clouds my thought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when I waked, I cried to dream again. So, that is, as you said, Belinky, it's a, it's a selection from The Tempest. It's... A line about uh, it's a line from Caliban, who's ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, yes, who's always yeah. a, a sort of tricky figure for modern audiences to grapple with in Shakespeare, because the Tempest, as you know, is set on uh, one of the one of the Caribbean islands. What is uh, not, the name not, of the of the Tempest Island? It's it's not named. I if if it is named, I I think it's a f- if it has a name, it's a fictional one. I don't think it's meant to be somewhere specific because it well. Okay, so several things. The Tempest is kind of unique among Shakespeare's plays in that it's one of the few, if not the only one, that isn't inspired by prior literature or prior works. I mean, obviously, it takes it takes bits and pieces from from several from several mythical ideas, you know, chiefly like wizards. But you know, Hamlet comes from a particular historical story. Julius Caesar comes from a story. The the Henriad, that that whole cycle of plays comes from that. But the idea of a duke who's exiled to an island, becomes a wizard, lures the descendants of the, and the usurpers to that island and sort of plays with their heads for a bit before forgiving them and promising to resume his uh to resume his regal title is is a is an original story. And so that in itself is distinct. It's also it's also the last play that we that we have in collection that uh, that Shakespeare wrote. Uh, if he wrote anything after that, it's not it's not part of the the canonical uh, folios. Yeah, yeah. And it's- the interesting thing about Caliban is that I mean he's a he's a he's a slave and he's a uh, he's a native, 
right? Like he's in, he's the, he's like a pre-colonial character or like a colonial character. He lives on yes. the island already. So so here's Kenneth Branagh, who is as English as they come, right? I mean, I'm here I'm going to be like, no, it turns out he's actually Welsh and he hides his accent well. I mean, you know, like I don't know, but it sounds like he's English as they come. Uh, and here he is speaking in the na- in the words of the you know the colonists, the co- the colonized, talking about what the island was like. Before the people got there and screwed it all up and enslaved him, right? Like, right. Uh, which is which is pretty dark when you think about it. Uh, but well, of course, yeah. In the in the context of the ceremony as a whole, it makes some. It it, may, it might make a little sense because there is that very pastoral scene, and there's Branagh speaking about you know clouds dropping riches and sweet dreams and this this very pleasant you know peaceful setting, and then. Not too far thereafter in the ceremony becomes the Industrial Revolution stage show where, you know, giant smokestacks literally erupt from the earth in the uh, in, in Boyle's depiction here. And, you know, we have there's there's a lot of machinery and grime. And I, I wasn't paying as close attention to this. So Blinky Lee, you guys can yeah, can they, chime. They in roll up. away the green turf and then it gives way to a very industrial uh, you know, sort of metal sort of look and it really right. evokes well, the reason why I mentioned the Shire earlier is because this industrial landscape really evokes Isengard from Lord of the right. Rings the, the transition from this greenery that like you peel away and it's just like raw uh, flesh of the earth and this molten metal and it really does seem very anti-industrial revolution as opposed to sort of like stressing like wow the quality of life is improving for everybody and we're really pushing human ingenuity forward it's more like oh isn't it sad that we have to get rid of all this pretty bushes yeah, yeah, it gave way to a pretty hellish landscape. And yet, and yet, that they forge the Olympic rings. From right, which this, is this uh, triumphant uh, moment where there's this molten metal, uh, you know, forges a ring which rises into the sky. And it was very, you know, and then starts raining sparks down on everybody. And it is sort of a triumphant moment, but it sort of comes out of this very, and I thought it was very interesting that the people go from wearing these, these uh, Shire-esque, very comfortable cotton clothing to this sort of like leather and metal uh, welding gear you know that like everyone looks uncomfortable and and Kenneth Bredo alone seems to be staring happily at the rising towers <laughs> of industry smoking his cigar uh looking like uh pleased with like you know what he's managed to to invoke uh and yeah. it is it is kind of like like how are we supposed to judge that sequence are we like isn't this great that the industrial revolution is happening or like man England was great before all these uh towers came along and the atmosphere got polluted and you know, all the children had to go to work smelting Olympic rings. <laughs> so I, I guess the the colonial slash colonizer interpretation fails a little, but in the sense of, you know, you have a native of the island who's expressing a longing for expressing a longing for or appreciation of the peaceful pastoral sense, immediately followed by the industrialization. The speech works in that sense. And that, right. you know, he's yeah. talking about noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and then is immediately replaced by clanking and steaming and smoking. Yeah, I mean, it ignores like the hundreds of years of war and invasions and and purgings and other sorts of things that happened during the medieval pre-industrial period for England, right? Which I mean, it was relatively prosperous. I mean, you know, it's not as bad as being in in Germany during some of the bad stuff that was happening there. But I mean, you know, is is he? Are we to believe that he is? You know. A Celt, like an Anglo-Saxon, like a Dane, like a Norse, you know, like when when did Kenneth Branagh show up and decide that he was the first one there, right, uh, is is one of the questions. But I, I mean, I want to get too far into it because clearly this narrativization doesn't care about that, right? And it's just sort of is pushing that under the rug and is taking for granted this pastoral, this pastoral ideal uh, moving forward. It is interesting, though, that they are forging the Olympic rings in industry because when they were coming up with the Olympics, it was the other way around, right? It was people who were post newer industrial who are kind of looking back and trying to reclaim what they ideal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What did the ancients in their, you know, Arcadian you know, nakedness and what did they think was manly and appropriate, right? In these like Olympian clubs back in the day. Um, yeah. that gave rise to the Olympics, modern Olympics. So this whole industrial pastiche it's it's not clear what they're trying to communicate as sort of a national spirit, right? But I say what was very clearly communicated as a national spirit was children's choirs used heavily in the opening <laughs> ceremonies, like beating you over the head with it. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think that was pretty effective, and it, it does um, tap into what are, is sort of a, this thing that already exists in the culture. Um, that is to say that uh, you hear a children's choruses and you think of uh, the Isles, I guess. I don't know. 
Is that did that did that ring true for anyone else? Do you think I mean, there was like a children's choir wrangler in the back who was like dictating what order they could have their meat and pudding in? Is that appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, Matt, I jumped ahead of you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely was was waiting for them to do uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, but they they didn't. No, there they was did, a, there was a reference. There was a wink to Pink Floyd at the intro. I don't know special effects montage, like a tour through modern London, uh, leading up to. Did, did you guys see this? You may have well, not, it. not well, not just a wink to it. They did play the the tail end of Dark Side of the Moon at the very end, right before yes. Hey Jude. No, oh, I missed that. I was probably fast forwarding through a lot of the parts that I found boring. Um, but there was at the beginning of this sort of like tour through fast uh, fast paced tour through London. They did show the uh, the inflated pig. Uh, from one of the, I can't remember what it was like, some sort of Pink Floyd publicity stunt or music video or something well, it, like that. Well, it, it's become a, it's become a staple of the concerts. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I forget. I don't know Pink Floyd well enough to know the specific context, but yeah, they they often have giant floating pigs at their concerts. Yeah, yeah. The inflated inflated pig was part of the London skyline. Interesting. So wait, moving forward uh, in the ceremony chronologically, I believe after the industrial part, we get the the video sequence, which, which is the most talked about part of the opening ceremonies. Um, and I want to—I I actually was underwhelmed with it when I saw it, and I sort of thought it was like a waste of five minutes. But people seem to to love it. Uh, and and so let me let me briefly describe for the people who didn't see it. It starts with uh, Daniel Craig, presumably as James Bond, walks into Buckingham Palace, uh, and they take their time so- showing him stroll through the hallways. They have a, a bunch of sort of like uh, loving shots of these sort of corgis playing uh, playing, you know, by, by themselves unsupervised. And he walks into a room, and there is you know an, an old woman sort of sitting at a desk uh, with her her back to him, and you sort of are like, is that is that really? And she turns around and it is in fact the queen. And she has one line in the whole piece. I believe she says like, you know, good evening, Mr. Bond. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, ma- yeah. and he's like, your majesty. And then there is follows another sequence, which I say is like maybe a minute to 90 seconds of them walking out of Buckingham Palace. Once again, with shots of the corgis. Then they walk into a helicopter. The helicopter moves over London and there's a bunch of shots of people on the ground sort of waving to them, including one really creepy shot of a Winston Churchill statue, which comes to life and waves to the helicopter. Oh, also a British ins- member of the insane clown posse. Yeah, or the, or whatever their equivalent is over there, really right? really evoked insane clown posse to me for some reason, but yeah, he was there. <laughs> Juggalos so represent. So then, then the sort of punchline of the sequence, which is the helicopter gets to the Olympic Stadium, at which point it goes from being a pre-recorded thing to the helicopter is actually there in real time above the Olympic Stadium. Uh, and then you, you cut to a clip from inside the helicopter where Daniel Craig sort of pulls open the door. It looks as like he's about to jump out, and then he steps back, and the queen jumps out of the helicopter, followed by Daniel Craig, and two people uh, parachute into the Olympic Stadium. Uh, you don't see them land because presumably it's not actually the queen. And then, like, a second later, the queen walks into her box and is greeted by thunderous applause. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's cute, but if my immediate reaction is, like, this is probably a five-minute video, and it seems like it didn't really need to be five minutes. There's a lot of footage of people walking through hallways. A lot of footage of corgis walking through hallways. Inexplicably <laughs> large amount of footage of corgis. <laughs> and- and I mean, I'm assuming that the queen is difficult to work with. I'm assuming that perhaps she's not the the most versatile actress, and that like she doesn't she doesn't have a lot to do. She says one thing. She basically just walks down the hallway into a helicopter, you know. So that like it's not like well, they, well, Meredith, they Meredith Vieira of NBC had a to cut you okay. off had a brief had a brief interview with Danny Boyle after the presentation, which I stupidly stuck around to watch, and. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm sorry to to editorialize really briefly. I could not stand any of the live commentary coming from Matt Lauer or Bob Costas or Meredith Vieira or or any of them. Just it it just it, yeah waste of waste of time. Like audit, auditory commenting on visual effects that were happening live as we were seeing them completely superfluous. Anyway, Meredith Vieira interviewing Danny Boyle afterwards, and Danny Boyle who is. I, I will caveat this with a citizen of the United Kingdom said that the Queen was great to work with. Now, I don't know if that's just you know something he's required by law to say. If that's part of the Magna Carta, <laughs> perhaps. Well, the like, thing I, that this I don't know. <laughs> the thing that's recalled he did, he for did me. He did say okay. she was good to work with. 
That's cool. The thing that it's recall, recalled for me, I just was sort of flashing back to that, seeing you know clips of this part and, and seeing the all the pictures of the displeased queen that were floating around the internet as she sort of looked on kind of unhappily on some of the proceedings was the huge <laughs> – the huge controversy around whether it was a like violation of the sacrosanctity of the office and the trust of the office to like televise her coronation. Right? Like like to think about how far we've come that like when they were going to do the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, there was a huge debate over what and how much of it of the interior of Westminster Abbey could actually be put on television. Um and in fact, they ended up doing the actual anointing like behind a screen because they felt like they couldn't broadcast it to everybody. And now you have her, you know, the world has changed so much. And, she, you know, she, it's her literally jumping out of that helicopter, right? <laughs> I mean, not, uh, not literally. Okay, but. I know, I know, I know. Right. No, but I, I see your point, which is that you could only really judge the short film in the context of who the queen is and sort of like what she's done traditionally in her role in society. Judge is like a short film. It's not particularly interesting. No, I mean you can you can judge it. I mean, say cut cut forty five seconds out of it, it would be better. I believe you. You're a good editor. You know, like that makes sense. But like, if you were going to make a film about like James Bond picking up the Queen to bring her to the bring her to the opening ceremonies, you could have I don't know. You could have like scripted a few jokes in there or something. But I I mean, that maybe maybe that's just me. To to me, it seemed like the waste of the conceit, which is that James Bond is real and the Queen is real, and they're like together. you know that, that that something could have happened besides them, like you know, walking side by side through through Buckingham Palace. But obviously, to the people who who are British, huge reaction that that this is you know cool beyond their wildest dreams. Oh man! So like you could have him like I'm I'm picturing him coming up to like a, a an anonymous like uh, an anonymous kind of bar and asking for a martini shaken not stirred and instead getting a cup of tea, right? And you look up and it's like you know a a, bar, a bartender and the Queen of England and it's like oh crud you know like something like that <laughs> something that's more engaged with the myth. <laughs> but yeah, but I think I think here you have the sort of the problem of large. I'm sure there were many many people who had to approve this video for it to go out and sort of the tedium of. But that's that's true of all entertainments. Um, but anyway, I feel like I feel like your criticism is valid. But at the same time, uh, it's also interesting to talk about what it represents independently of whether it could have been cut down by a minute and be better or two minutes. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the corgi people were pretty happy. Do you think big corgi had their fingers in this one? Is that really what happened here? <laughs> It, it does seem like one of the one of the conditions of getting the queen to cooperate was like huge amounts of screen time for the dogs. <laughs> you know what? If that's all it takes, I think I think. Uh, um, uh, oh gosh, what is what am I? What was his name? Uh, Edmund Burke would have said that that's like that's how he wants the aristocracy to act. He wants them to be so content in their position of privilege that they will like fight for screen time for their corgis and thus allow the lower and middle classes to continue their lives unmolested uh, yeah. by the, by corruption and power. Okay, so so we get to this part with the queen. Now, let me ask you guys this. Where is the forbidden section in all this? Has this already happened? Uh, the section that was cut out of the American broadcast that we're hearing about on the internet these days? Or is that something that happens later in the broadcast? That happens later in the show. Oh, okay. okay. So just, yeah. let me let me just it's, describe what, what happens here. Is from what I understand that, um, well, I actually saw the forbidden the part that was cut out uh, from the American broadcast because I um, acquired through the internet a recording of the um, of the broadcast, uh, like a, the Canadian version of it, um, and they had better taste, so it was not to cut the sequence, which was a uh, from what I understand it was a tribute to the victims of the uh, July seventh bombing attacks on the uh, London uh, transportation system. Is this correct? Yes. Does that sound right? Yeah, and yeah. so apparently in, um, in NBC, they cut, they cut this out entirely um, and showed instead a, uh, a completely uninteresting uh, Ryan Seacrest interview of Michael Phelps. Um, made all the worse by the fact that Michael Phelps uh, performed very poorly um, in, in, uh, in his first few races in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was the uh, controversy. Do you think this there. would have been less offensive if Michael Phelps had done better in the first few races in the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> or, if the, or, or, if the, or if the Ryan Seacrest interview was slightly more interesting. Yeah. The, <laughs> oh, Perhaps. The, there's like, they only get the bronze medal for that one. Like the Chinese Ryan Seacrest interviewing yeah. the Chinese Michael Phelps nailed that one and got the gold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, between that and uh, what, uh, Mitt Romney's uh, ham-fisted uh, criticism of the London games, it's, uh, it's a lot of sort of yeah. Americans uh, behaving poorly with the British uh, yeah. with regards to these Olympics so far. 
And then, and then of, of course, there's a, there's a controversy within a controversy, which is that a lot of people felt like there should have been some sort of a, a reference to the, uh, to the 1972 Munich uh, massacre at uh, those Olympics, mm-hmm. um, which, was, uh, which was 40 years ago. And it was, sort of, it was sort of next that there'd be no mention of it in the opening ceremonies. But of course, there was this tribute to the, the victims of the London bombing, which is only tangentially Olympic-related. Um, yeah. Now, of course, obviously, it's the London Olympics. That's not surprising that they're, you know, they're they're going to pay tribute to the to the victims of of the London uh, bombing. Um, I don't know. Nevertheless, it's it's sort of like you know. So, so the the controversy about the Americans not showing that tribute is sort of like, you know, the Russian dolls of controversy. Yeah. Um, I, I, but, I was talking. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I just uh, speaking of Mitt Romney. I was thinking it's interesting that uh, on the occasion of his visit, one of the the sequences in the opening ceremonies is basically a lavish musical tribute to socialized medicine. <laughs> that, That's did, what it did was. You not, did you not see this part, Pete? Oh, I heard about it. I read about it on Twitter. Right. That sounded pretty pretty redonk. The, it's it's this it was, weird segment that that there's sort of like a dual agenda in the segment, or it's sort of like parts one and part two, because part part one is just about like uh, the National Health Service, their socialized medicine, and how great it is. And they they made a big here's the thing: they made a big deal in the broadcast about how all the the people that came out and were dancing were actual doctors and nurses, but they I gotta believe that some of them were trade dancers. <laughs> because, well, like, that's I, possible. I just, yeah, I, I you know, so, so basically, the, the gist is that there are sort of light up uh, beds, and that there are uh, doctors and nurses dressed in sort of like old timey doctor nurse, nurse outfits that come out and push the bed and make uh, formations with beds and sort of uh, eventually uh, spelled out NHS uh, on the field in light up uh, beds. Uh, tributes of the National Health Service, and it just—it it definitely did seem a little striking that um, and then and then that, that segment somehow became about uh, Voldemort uh, and versus the Poppinses. So also it, 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 also Cruella Deville. Let's not forget she was yeah. in role. So I mean, serious crossover fanfic going on here. The the whole opening ceremony. I mean, here's the thing. It's like when you do an opening ceremony, do you want it to have like one central through line, or do you want it to like you come up with a bunch of ideas and you give ten minutes to each one? Well, Voldemort and Mary Pop. This this just came to me. Voldemort and Mary Poppins are both both sort of figure in the grander British mythology of neglected children. I guess in that Voldemort is responsible for orphaning Harry Potter at a young age because you know, spoiler alert, he kills Harry's parents. And Mary Poppins is a classic British story about a. You know, a governess who, you know, is responsible for raising and maintaining the children day to day while their parents, or while in this case their father, is off at work for a London bank and, you know, very busy and very full of business and as a result never able to properly see to his children. So I guess that's the connection that they have. And then well, Voldemort, Voldemort is coming to, you know, take take children's innocence away and kill their parents. And here comes Mary Poppins to make sure they have a pleasant childhood regardless. Well, I think the other connection as well is, is Peter Pan related, right? Did everybody catch right. this? The, the segment was actually called uh, Second to the Right and Straight on Till Morning. And, and it's supposed to be the, – the estate of J.M. Barry, uh, he actually left all the royalties to Peter Pan, I believe to this day, to a particular uh, children's hospital in London. Um, and so that's – although curiously enough, now that you mention it, I don't recall Peter Pan showing up in the children's literature no, section. No, 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 no. Which is weird because but, but, that, but I can't remember the details of the Peter Pan story. Does that also fall into the same category of neglect? Well, J.K. JK Rowling read a bit. Is this is this around that time, or am I thinking of something else? Yeah, that was part of it. So she was reading from Peter Pan. Yeah, was uh-huh. she reading? Okay, so that's that's the Peter Pan thing. So did Batman show up? Because he's an orphan, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Voldemort killed his parents. He, he is played by a um, uh, a citizen of the United Kingdom, right? Christian Bale is Welsh. Prob- yeah, probably the world's most prominent Welshman at this point, right? Like, who else is there? I mean, if, I'm sure that he's out there, and we just haven't don't talk about him a lot because his last name is so hard to spell. I believe right? Indiana Jones is supposed to be Welsh. Uh, Indiana in- Jones is, or or that rather, his his father. And potentially his mother. I think. I think he's actually supposed to. I don't know. I'm gonna have to Google this. That that there's a pos- I remember him even maybe being born in Wales, but I might be wrong about this. So so here's a thought. When the next time the Olympics comes back to America, which is which is going to be many years yet, I believe. But w- would there be would there be a possibility for 
I guess, figures from American mythology to appear in the Olympic opening ceremonies, for which the obvious nominee, nominees would be superheroes. So Superman, wow. for instance. I think he'd, well, he would be a, a classic example of, you know, an entry in American mythology. Now, I can't think of a tasteful way to integrate him into an Olympic opening ceremony, but it, it, then again, if I were in charge of Olympic opening ceremonies, they'd be very, very stead and probably very unentertaining. I think Danny Boyle did a great job with this one. So don't don't come to me for this, but would like what would the equivalent of an American opening ceremony of this scale be? Like, what would you what would you work in? Well, the, I, the, I don't know. I, I don't have a quite the, the answer to that right off the top of my head, but just going back to the last time a Summer Olympics was in the United States, I mean, 1996, I think I remember uh, it heavily featured pickup trucks with a lot of chrome and, uh, <laughs> and ZZ Top. <laughs> it's pretty darn I, I think, American. What, I think what, what, what it would happen is you could put Superman in an opening ceremony, but the Olympics would have to be like either in Kansas or in Los Angeles. Right, like I think there's a tendency to make them more regionalized, but but I'll answer your question more directly. So um, I was just listening to uh, NPR Planet Money podcast where they talked about this. One of the cool things about this English uh, opening ceremony is that it appears to pivot the Briti- the English or British in general, UK in general, national identity into sort of a new direction to try to position it for this sort of 21st century globalized world, all this other stuff. It's creating a narrative for England in particular that's you know very uh, acceptable and, and kind of has a dynamic, positive, forward-looking energy for what's going to happen to this country in the future, right? That it's this sort of idyllic island that kind of pioneered industry and has now been a caretaker to children all around the world and all this other stuff. So what then is the way in which America can pivot, right? And to do that sort of thing, I mean, I might focus on the immigrant story. Honestly, I mean, I would, I, I would be have run into terrible political problems, but like, I might focus on like the American immigrant story and like the various immigrant diasporas in the United States. I might even have like each Olympic team escorted onto the field by an American who is of the nationality of that team, or like uh, a group of Americans ooh, who are nationalities of that team. Yeah, yeah, and then I would like. Um, then I would put Batman in it. <laughs> he, and he would he would fight uh, he would he would drift race against Mario and Yoshi who aren't even American but I wouldn't mind it very much uh, but I mean I don't know it's like what is what is the story part of this is what is the story you want to tell about your country to the rest of the world it's like a marketing opportunity like in Eurovision when they do those little videos when you win it's like Greece is so beautiful and wonderful to come visit and you should totally buy a hotel room here and invest a bunch of money you hope never to see again um, that sort of thing well um, uh, here's something I was thinking of when I watched the opening ceremonies. This ceremony, and I actually don't have very clear memories of any other opening ceremonies besides like the, the thousands uh, synchronized drummers in Beijing. Oh, the um, Chinese army drummers are going to take us over. Everyone right, was scared right. crapless after that one. Yeah, I remember Cartman having nightmares on South Park <laughs> about how the Chinese were going to take over. Um, but here's the thing. It's all about England, but it's not about the Olympics, and it's not really about sports. I mean, yeah, some of it was about the Olympics. Certainly the the people walked out, and uh, all the Olympic athletes, and during the Industrial Revolution part, they forged the Olympic rings, but it basically seemed like this is the story of our country, this is what's great about our country, here's all the music, here's all the technology, and it's not a celebration of athletics and coming together internationally and everything. So, I don't know, I... I was kind of thinking it would be interesting and nice to see an opening ceremony that was more about like competition and you know training and 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 more, more just about like you know physical activity rather than just like you know here's the history of our country you know Disney on Ice version. So for the American next American opening ceremonies, this is just play uh, the movie Rocky um, in its entirety and leave it at that. I mean, kind of. I mean, if I they did the Olympics in Philadelphia, if they did in Philadelphia, but they were thinking of doing it, what, in Chicago or in New York City uh, would be places where they could do it. They could also have the ground open up and have various obstacles or hazards or, like, gaming apparatus come up out of the earth. And as each country comes on, they have to, like, negotiate a bunch of, like, rotating gates and, like, uh, you know, climbing walls and, like um, – 
maybe they have to like you know wrestle John Cena or something, and like they don't know what's going to happen, but uh, because they're Olympic athletes, they'll all get through it, and everybody has to manage. Um, and you like see which country is going to meet the challenge. Oh, you could have the aggro crag come up out of the ground. It would be awesome. Oh, wow. We would love it. <laughs> We'd mow the referee. Do you remember um, <laughs> Pete and I used to share uh, a <laughs> I know where this is going. Back I know where this is going. Can I yeah. tell the story? Uh, as long as you don't use any names or you're too defining. No, I won't, I won't use any names. Uh, okay. Pete and I had a, a roommate back in the day who was a, was a lesbian. Good friend of mine. Yep. Yeah, no, great, great girl. Um, and we, I think we asked her once, or it came up, just sort of like, who was your first lesbian crush? When did you first realize that you were attracted to women? And and without hesitation, she answered, "Mo, the referee from Guts." <laughs> and and if you recall, this is the a British woman uh, on Guts who has the most pointless job in the world because usually there's no doubt who won the event. It's like baskets and there's like a big counter on the screen. So it's like, you know, somebody makes like three baskets and somebody only makes two. And it's absolutely clear. But somehow like the event can't end until the announcer is like, all right, it looks like Ryan made three baskets and, and, and you know, John made only one. But let's go to Mo for the official results. And she's like, you know. Yes, oh, it, 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 was never, <laughs> it was always like, looks like Brandon was coming up from the top, but then Lauren was coming back. Let's go to Mo for the results. Mo! It was never, it was never like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm selling it short. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like she has, she has a pretty pointless job, but apparently uh, that, that our, our roommate claimed that, that it was not only her, but like she is sort of like a cult icon in the lesbian community. Don't know if she herself is a lesbian, but apparently this is a... Uh, uh, in, in a uh, a milestone for 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 many uh, many lesbians of our generation. It sounds while, like failing to feature her in the opening the, ceremony was a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> while we're on the subject of guts and romance, I I had a friend in college who who dated a girl for for several years, and his his plan he it never sounded serious, but he refused to back down from it in such a way that you almost had to believe it was was to get married on top of the aggro crag <laughs> <laughs> would they would they climb it as part of the ceremony as like a symbol of, I, I think they, their... i think I think they would the procession would have to go up the aggro crag yeah would they all have to wear helmets oh yeah absolutely for safety yes and and there would be rocks that like are fall like big paper mache rocks that fall down on them from the top. <laughs> Oh man, I missed that show. <laughs> hey, hey guys, can I, can I bring this back to the Olympics? The opening sure. ceremonies. Do you guys do you like like the part where Olmec was telling them how to get through the shrine of the silver monkey in the Olympic <laughs> opening ceremonies? <laughs> you should say the rules for every sport. You should be first. now in modern pentathlon. First, you must do pistol shooting at fifty meters. Then, you know, the jump your horse over. You guys know modern pentathlon, right? <laughs> It's my favorite. It's it's the uh, the five sports you would need to deliver a message in the Napoleonic army. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Oh, really? I did. I didn't know that was the. I didn't know that was the origin of the of the events in it. It is basically, and it's basically the Three Musketeers. You've got to like shoot your musket. <laughs> you have to like have a sword fight. You got to like jump your horse over a hedge and like swim, and then finally like run. And I like I like the way that like it scored instead of being like a, a complicated scoring system. Basically, they like figure out uh, on the previous four events how good you did, and then give you a handicap going into the run. So like whoever wins the run is the winning of the event. But if you like did really well in the sword fighting, you get to like start like you know thirty seconds before everyone else. So it's it's like the eliminator from the American Gladiators is what you're saying. Yeah, I love I love how we're managing to like relate the Olympics to like all the all the other great American uh, traditions. You, of, of you, you were asking what the Olympics would be like if they were American, and I <laughs> I think that we pretty much I mean we have them all the time, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it would be great to have Olmec come yeah. up and talk to people. Okay, all right. So well, let me let me get this idea on the opening ceremonies. This is sort of thesis that I've been working on um, over the course of the of the evening after watching the opening ceremonies. Um, it's that. Uh, pretty much any opening ceremonies that you see, it's a nation, uh, you know, not just trying to make a statement about itself, but also um, trying to prove something about itself to the world in a way that is addressing some sort of inferiority complex that it has. Um, this is, I can, this applies to almost every Olympic opening ceremony, except one, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and it, it just to think through the ages, I'll point out to one that's uh, you know close to my heritage, which would be the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. Um, for those who don't you know your Korean history that well, which is probably a lot of you, I don't blame you. Um, it, it, that time of that particular time of the nation's history, 
was that I was coming out of a period of um, of military dictatorship and was trying to transfer into you know into democracy and join sort of the developed world as an economic power and had a lot to prove with that one. Um, and uh, you think about uh, Athens in 2004 had a lot to prove trying to show that it wasn't this backwater uh, European country. Um, 2012 in England, this time around, Britain is trying to prove, uh, uh, you know, the United Kingdom is trying to prove itself, you know, in a new way uh, on the world stage, in a way that sort of, you know, is, you know, really def- uh, refining its post-colonial identity and such. Uh, or even go all the way back to 1936 with uh, Berlin and the Nazis, right? They're really trying to prove something there. Um that applies to, I think, every uh, opening ceremony is the Olympics, except for one, and I already mentioned it before, actually, which was 1996 in the United States. Because think about the world we lived in at the time. We had just won the Cold War. We were on top of the heap. We were, there's sort of nothing for us to prove, really, at that point. It's like, USA, awesome. What, what else can we do? Um, and so that's sort of my theory I want to put out there. I want, I want to first ask you guys if you agree and you think that sort of this is all sort of like a nation playing out its inferiority complex. And uh, two, do you sort of see that uh, continuing uh, in the foreseeable future? I mean, I guess I'm thinking about a couple of pretty awesome moments. I think in 1976, there was a point at which the Olympic flame was converted into a radio signal beamed via satellite from Greece to Canada. And then the signal was used to light a laser that relit the Olympic flame, I think is what happened. (laughs) Which would lead one to think that in the 70s, Canada was anxious about its level of technology, which I think if you know about the aerospace developments in Canada in the 60s and 70s probably is correct. Um, And, you know, I guess what, like firing the arrow into the cauldron at a – at uh, Lake Placid. Is that where that happened? I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, whether it was skiing or something like that. I mean, it's hard to say because to a degree, any time that anyone is trying to prove something, it either necessarily is or at the very least can be cast as uh, you know, attempting to overcome some sort of perceived either shortcoming or sort of relative outperformance by somebody else. Right? There's this sort of idea that whenever you do anything, you can set it in contrast to what's come before. Uh, but I guess, I mean... Countries shoring up. So I guess what what if if what if let's ask the question of what that isn't, right? Like what wouldn't be uh, covering up for an insecurity, and that would be trumpeting a strength, right? Or is trumpeting a strength also covering up for insecurity? Would the most secure way to have the opening ceremony just like have there be a buffet and just be like, you guys have fun, you know, this is your party too, have a good time. <laughs> I'm just gonna be hanging out, you know. Like, do you think that opening ceremonies in general are kind of like overly demonstrative and kind of gauche and reflect a certain lack of faith in oneself? You don't need an opening ceremony, man. Everyone's already there. They're coming to your party. Just I like mean, let think, them hang out. <laughs> in a way, like the platonic form of the opening ceremony would be more about like the theme of like internationalism and less about just like our country rocks. Right, right, right. You well, know that if, like yeah. you could still have something about your country, but it's more about like isn't this great how like the entire world has come together to compete? Right, which doesn't seem to be the Do you think that Like nobody's doing that? Yeah, <laughs> that's not really very fashionable right now. No, it's a not. A lot of state-sponsored capitalism. We have a lot of like resurgent nationalism in a lot of parts of the world. This is kind of a dangerous time. I don't know if we necessarily are going to be getting that spirit of peace. We can't even get that spirit of peace and brotherhood within like one city, let alone like across an entire world. But no, I mean, how would you do that though? How would you perform internationalism? Would it be like it's a small world after all? Or is there a way in which kind of caricaturing or like collaging the different nationalities is necessarily national? and separatist in certain ways. Not separatist, but about our divisions. How do you frame uh, an opening ceremony about agreement? Uh, how about uh, you show uh, like two of the most benign episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation back-to-back? Ones that don't involve conflict with the Romulans or anyone like that. Not even the Borg. Like, you know, just... like, the, one, like the one where they found Abraham Lincoln and the one where they found that planet of mobsters? <laughs> <laughs> everyone likes Abraham Lincoln and everyone hates mobsters so two, two things the world can agree on right 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 yeah, yeah that would be funny to have yeah sorry you know what's interesting about the 1996 Olympics is that it's kind of easy to forget nowadays or at least it is for me I don't know if I'm going to sound like a horrible person for saying it there was a, a terrorist attack 
Yeah. After, yeah. A successful terrorist attack that that killed two people and injured. I don't have these numbers at the top of my head, but apparently injured 111 people, and it did not stop the games. They just kept going and nowadays it's like when you think back on the 1996 olympics maybe you remember that happened but it's not all about that's not the only thing you think of right right i I remember zz top for example and chrome trucks (laughs) right and it just seems it was it was a time when (laughs) there was terrorism in the world but it wasn't like so dominant in our thinking that it wasn't the existential threat that it's become. Yes, now. exactly. It's like, oh, isn't it a shame that somebody did that? But like, we're not going to let it ruin the Olympics. Whereas nowadays, I mean, I sort of wonder if there was the exact same attack nowadays, you kind of feel like they wouldn't just go out and play water polo the next day, right? That the entire city would be on lock. Uh, I don't know. I think the city would be on lock, but they'd probably still play water polo. You feel like there, there'd right? be like- tremendous pressure to keep going right like you can't cancel the olympics no matter what right i mean the controversy would be that like the people wouldn't be able to go to it anymore they would like lock it down and make all the spectators yeah. go home right and like still try to hold the event like, yeah, well, i the, think there, the, i think there's less con- i think there's less concern about terrorist incidents this year just because the olympics are being constantly patrolled by these two giant one-eyed robots Called Wenlock and Mandeville, whose <laughs> whose all-seeing eyes and pleasant plush exterior are simultaneously observing us while embracing us in in safety. So I I for one am not worried because you know if if something should happen, Wenlock and Mandeville will will link arms and legs and form the giant destroying robot uh, Wendelock. <laughs> And and will will slaughter the the agents of evil indiscriminately while keeping civilians perfectly safe with their plush multicolored rays. <laughs> do you let's, think let's, that? Let's, oh, go ahead. Let's use oh, this can I make a, a quick? Yeah, please, okay, please, fine. Go ahead. I just say, do you think that Wenlock and Mandeville are like the Scottish Guard at the at Buckingham Palace, and that like they look all touristy and nice, but they're actually like crack special forces troops who have this duty only as like a supreme honor of their command? <laughs> that like they could actually like jump out of the suits and just like wrestle you to the ground like nobody's business why um, jump why jump out of the suits the suits yeah. <laughs> are the suits are kevlar and are laced <laughs> with titanium blades <laughs> awesome. i love it okay, so what i wanted to do is use this um opportunity to segue to uh, some discussion of the visual identity of the olympics as evinced by the mascots um the cyclopean mascots and the jagged logo um, uh, if, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, just uh, do yourself a favor. Uh, go to Google Image Search and type in London 2012, and you'll see a lot of examples of the logo and the mascot it's, there. It's and terrible, you'll, And you'll right? be like, what the hell? Um, and it's so a really just, bad yeah. logo. So let's talk about that. Like, what, what gives? What are, they trying to, what are they trying to communicate with this? And, um, and how small was the graphic design budget? I mean, the, the thing that I keep hearing is obscene, so I don't want to repeat it. <laughs> um, but it looks like it's roughly on the model of those love stamps from, like, the 90s or whatever that was, where it's like – or, like, I Love New York, where it's like, let's put four things in a quadrant in, like, a in like a – you know, oh, one in the upper right, one in the upper left, one in the lower right, one in the lower left, and then we'll um, we'll pick a color arbitrarily, and there you go. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess they're trying to make it edgy. Are they feeling too insecure about it not being edgy enough if they just use freaking numbers? You know, it's it's uh, it's tough to say. You guys heard the obscene thing, right? Like we've all heard the same obscene thing about the London logo. Um, I haven't, but looking at it and uh, you know, really like. You know, trying to interpret something dirty from it. Yeah, I can. Uh, I mean, I can it's it involves Bart and Lisa Simpson is the one that I keep hearing. So use your <laughs> imagination for that one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess. Well, what do you think the logo is actually successfully communicating? Is it doing anything brand wise for uh, for these Olympics? Like it, other than it, indicating it that it's feel, in like it, a. It makes me feel unsettled. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it is, it's kind of like German jagged. expressionism, right? It's like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> I thought yes. it looked like something out of a two live crew concert or something. But anyway, it's a it's a tough logo to get psyched about. Like it 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 doesn't yeah like like you say, Mark. It's it's unsettling. The eye doesn't rest on it easily. There's a constant, almost Brechtian state of reinterpretation as you <laughs> as you as you encounter it and reencounter. Like, what is this? Oh, it's the London Olympics. Wait, what is? Oh, it's the London Olympics. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it looks like the kind of thing you could just tag in a whole bunch of places, and like people would be on the lookout for somebody named Zoys. Like, and they're like, where, where is Zoys? We need to find this guy. He keeps vandalizing the Whole Foods. Yeah, it's probably not good that you need to be told what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, what is that? It's like, it's 2012. Oh, right. I see it now. The Coney 2012 people have got the London 2012 people totally beat in terms of logos, <laughs> which is unfortunate. <laughs> But wait, was Coney at the Olympics? Wait, was Coney there? Did he come? Because it was Coney 2012, right? Like, is he not at the Olympics? He was, I think he was vanquished by the Papazes. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is the two supposed to be in the shape of the British island? Is that what's going on? Uh Oh. (laughs) I feel like... Yeah, let's go for that. Yeah, exactly. It's like those magic guy things that you're supposed to squint at. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, there have been worse logos, right? Wasn't there one logo where they're like, "This is a, clearly a swastika" and like is a huge problem? <laughs> an Olympic, an Olympic logo, you mean? Yeah, yeah. What was the nineteen? Was it the nineteen ninety six Olympic logo? Uh, let me see if I can bring that up. Oh no, that one was a torch. What was the two thousand one? Um, no, that one was actually pretty good. That was Sydney, two thousand four. Oh, 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 no, no nineteen thirty six, Berlin. That one. <laughs> that one, yeah, that's the one I was thinking yeah. about. You got it. Nailed it. Awesome. Uh, Maybe they canceled the one that I heard about, but uh, yeah, yeah. I like the Barcelona one from 1992. That might be my favorite one. Um, but uh, although the Sydney one is kind of – it's a jazzy variation on the same thing basically, well, so, which is kind of cool. I mean to, to be fair, I guess, a little bit to the people who came up with this horrendous logo um, <laughs> and also to Danny Boyle. And I mean like I, I'm giving the ceremonies a little bit of a hard time. Here as well. Um, both of these things, putting on the Olympics opening ceremony and designing a logo for the Olympics, are um, incredibly difficult tasks. Um, you're trying to uh, please the largest audience possible while at the same time uh, evoking something unique about the games and about the host city itself. Um, you're pretty much going to lose no matter how you, uh, no matter how you go about doing it. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that most of the logos are pretty low risk, like the Olympic logos. I think this logo is higher risk than most, I think. I mean, look at the Beijing 2012 logo, right? It's just a person. Most of them are just people running. 2008, right? Torches, yeah. right? Or 2008, yeah. There's either people running or there's torches. So you could, if you really wanted to be risk averse, you could have just made a person running or a torch. You could have put a freaking torch on top of Big Ben on, that made it look like it. You could use the London Fire Monument. You could have like built a whole bunch of stuff. Honestly, why didn't they? Has, has, has did they do anything with that? By the way, the monument has that been a factor at all? Wait, which monument? So okay, so London burned down in like 1666, right? And okay. uh, yeah, yes, the, the League of Shadows burned it down. Yeah, exactly, the League of Shadows burned it down because Batman wasn't around to stop them. Uh, and there is a monument called the Monument that is in London. That is a big pillar with a giant golden flame on top. Um, that like you know is kind of a. I mean you know you can go, you can go look at it. It's pretty. You can climb it. You know. Uh, the Monument London. Uh, yeah, I'm see. looking at it now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, they could have used that. Like, they could have lit the Monument of London. Uh, although, I guess it's referring to the deaths of many, many people. But it's supposed to be about how the, the city built itself back up after burning down. I mean, you could have lit the top of the Monument of London and turned that into your logo if you wanted to. Um, you could have lit the, you could have set the London Eye on fire. You could have burned down uh, Westminster Abbey. You could have done <laughs> All strong <laughs> choices, Pete. Admiral Nelson could be shooting arrows of flame across the city. Uh, any number of options. Anything's possible. Follow your dreams, kids. That's the real lesson of this podcast is follow your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, okay. So I feel like – I mean having not really seen the opening ceremony, but my sense is the sequence went big cultural narrative – Bunch of fiddly doodly weird stuff, and then like all the countries walk in, right? Like that's how it went. That's kind of the gist. Yeah, I mean that's how it always goes. Okay, that's how. And it eventually goes. you have to let everybody walk in, which always takes longer than I expect. It's one of those things where like you know I sort of tuned it out for a while, and like I I looked at it again, and they were still on the A's. And that there are a lot of countries that start with A, but it was like a little disconcerting that we'd been through three commercial breaks and we were still in like Angolia. Let's let's not forget that at the very end of the the ceremonies, Paul McCartney came out and played Hey Jude. Right. To everyone's surprise. I know that there are a lot of countries you've never heard of, but Paul McCartney is going to come out. (laughs) So wait, so let's let's talk about that then. Let's talk about Hey Jude. Is Hey Jude an appropriate song to play at the Olympics? 
Well, let's, let's keep in mind, I think Hey Jude is one of the big Beatles hits Paul McCartney himself wrote. Right. So it's the only one that, that they can still do because John is, is no longer with us? Is that the issue? I'm just saying that maybe like if Paul McCartney has a say in choosing it, it's like a personal favorite of his. Also to the, also to the point about the Olympic opening ceremony being ideally a spirit of u- uniting the world and bringing everyone together – Hey Jude has the advantage of being a song that everyone in the world can sing, or at least yeah, everyone can sing. It becomes a sing along at the end, and they really uh, play that up. That's cool. I guess sing alongs are good. Yeah. Although to be fair, that the same is also true of Yellow Submarine. So missed opportunity, guys. <laughs> <laughs> they could have just did they do Bohemian. They had to have done Bohemian Rhapsody, right? They've. I don't know. I, as soon as I say it, I know that they had. It to was part of the uh, insanely convoluted musical medley of uh, all sorts of uh, British pop and rock songs uh, throughout the the latter part of the 20th century. Um, I got you. Yeah, it was it was lost amongst the noise. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. Yeah. You know what's wow. interesting? Here's the thing. Like, I think that that sort of having the music drop out in Hey Jude and inviting people to sing along, that's a classy move. I'm not sure how I feel about the whole, like, just the men, everybody, just the men. It's like, now just the ladies. Let's hear the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I think it's like a personal taste thing. But to me, it seems like that seems like a little bit like beneath the dignity of the Olympic moment. That is, that is I felt the same way watching it. That is a little state fair. And yeah. yet. At the, at, and yet, at the same time, you know, the Olympics does distinguish between men's and women's events. So why can't Paul McCartney? You know, and then, and then I feel like he could have gone further with it. He should have been like, you know, just like the House of Lords, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> just like the peers of the realm. Just the, just the, just the former Sovblock countries. Yeah. All right. Just the co- Asian co-prosperity sphere. All right. <laughs> now give it to me, Africa. Let's do this. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh geez! All right. So, any any final any final yeah. thoughts about our wonderful? I like to end with some final thoughts on most of our podcasts. You know, wait, I, I did I did want to briefly address because I always think it's a fun moment of the Olympic ceremonies. Presumably, there was a time when to light the torch, they just had somebody come up and light the torch. Those days are gone forever. Now, <laughs> like, this is like a big thing. You have to come up with a really clever way. And I believe it might have started with it. That's the first time I remember it. I think Atlanta was the one where they had an archer with a flaming uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves style arrow, arrow that actually like fired uh, the arrow uh, like, you know, up to the torch and, and lit it. Um, and then, you oh, know, they've been doing it for a while before then. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Muhammad Ali lit it, didn't he? Right, but like he didn't light it by like punching it. He just went up and lit it. <laughs> you can't punch him, Matt. He has advanced Parkinson's disease. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so they, they did. Here's so here's what they did this year. They had uh, every one of the countries that walked in. Uh, they had somebody carrying like a, a copper uh, horn, like a, a mini cornucopia, which it was unclear uh, what what a uh, role this played. But it turned out every single country was like assembling a Dr. Seussian sort of statue that had like uh, you know two hundred something uh, little torches, and then they had people come up and lit uh, a selection of those, and they all became lit, and it became. Um, a little torch for every country, which then sort of like came together to form a big cauldron of flame. Um, so I'm, I was just, here's, here's what I wanted to ask if I, if I could do a sort of a second question of the day. What would be a cool way to light the Olympic torch? If you could come up with anything, and, and I'm going to do mine right off the bat, which is just I'm going to let OK Go do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like oh, you, guys, you guys take the Olympic flame and you impress us. Because, I mean, Man. that's pretty much, like, what it's coming up to. Um, and especially, there, there does seem to be an element of one-upsmanship that the last time we had an Olympics, that was when they had four Canadian sports icons light four different torches simultaneously, which then sort of rose up at combined. Uh, and very memorably, one of them uh, failed to do so. <laughs> and everyone stood around awkwardly while they tried to get the fourth torch to rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, this Olympics basically does the same thing, but they have, like, 200 torches. So now it's like, you know, Brazil's really got – they got to do something interesting. They got to have like samba dancers on fire that come together. Mm-hmm. So here, here's my nomination for the next time the U.S. hosts it. Uh, okay. That, you know, every, that every nation or every representative or whoever or everybody carries in a, an iPhone, a model iPhone of whatever the last generation is prior to that year. So if it's 2020, <laughs> by the next time we hold it, they're, they're all bringing in iPhone 12s or something. The iPhone 13 has just come out. And then the iPhone 12s all have pictures of a flame on them. And then they're all t- 
arranged in this mosaic. And then the iPhone 12s burst into, f- into actual fire because now that the iPhone 13 is out there, obviously useless. <laughs> and this sort of conflagration of plastic and silicon and lithium you know, erupts into the sky. And that is, of course, the Olympic, the Olympic flame, the Olympic torch. No, no, this is what's going to happen. I got it. I got it. Okay. So um, the, the last uh, – the person who's going to light the, light the torch um, is, is out, um, unsteadily walks out across the ice and some bad guys are like trying to push them out to walk into the ice. And then the bad guys are mysteriously attacked by an unseen assailant. Um, and then they see a, um, a flare uh, sitting on the ground. And then here's someone tells them, light him up. <laughs> And then the bat logo nice on on, uh, on on an edifice, um, and then yes, and then Batman will be there with opening ceremonies. That's how we're gonna make it happen, guys. Oh man, That's pretty good actually. See, I'm envisioning five giant like uh, like like transparent aluminum lenses supported by elaborate rotocopters that are hovering above the uh, the stadium, right? And that each have like their own giant Olympic uh, flame, which was brought from each of the continents that are represented and then the light from those flames passes through the lenses and like focuses on a point in the middle of the olympic stadium and then burns down the entire stadium and everyone flees in terror (laughs) (laughs) and that's and at that very moment you hold all of the gold medal events simultaneously uh in that burning stadium so that the works only lasts for about nine minutes i love that Uh, you stipulated they have to be transparent aluminum the the fictional metal that scotty designs in star trek 4 hello computer all all gold all gold medal events simultaneously and in the same space so you have gymnasts vaulting over dressage horses yes and archers archers shooting at synchronized swimmers and and all of it it's like uh, what everyone thought MMA was going to be before it became the whole thing that it is right now. <laughs> and then and actually to top it all off, you just have Calvin and Hobbes running through it, just like throwing a ball back and forth and yelling at everybody, which is awesome. Yeah, nice. All right. I think on that note, we have to call it a games and we have to go to the, the – but this is not the closing ceremony. No, this is, mere, this is merely the opening ceremony. For now, we pass the conversation to you. Uh, join us in the show notes. Talk with us in the comments threads meet us up on the forums send us voicemails send us emails you know where to find us we love talking to you guys and we hope that you love talking to us too our little piece of the olympics is just our first one i'm sure we'll talk about it many more times before this is all over uh but until then uh we are as always the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve This yeah, royal yeah. throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself, against infection and uh, the hand of war. Why couldn't you say that? That's a nice speech. It is a little <laughs> it is a little sort of warlike, though. It 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 does I'll I'll skip down a little. Uh, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy oh, of yeah. less happier it's not, lands. It's friendly. Yeah, it's yeah. not about like welcoming people in. It's yeah, <laughs> but it it does it does end with the line: "This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, England, mm. England." Actually, I think I I think I have the best. I think I, I know the the poem that they need to read. Uh, the, the next uh, that they should have read at the beginning of the opening ceremonies. What poem in is ancient, it? In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history. Lives a strange race of people, the Druids. <laughs> no one knows who they were or what they were doing, but their legacy remains hewn into the living rock of stone. Why <laughs> <laughs> the demons dwell with the banshees live, and, and they, they do, do live well. <laughs> Wait, can I change my answer to the opening question? <laughs> Why do we not have Spinal Tap open the Olympic yes, Games? Yes, England's loudest band. Ha <laughs>